Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Robin Benacasa, who's a, uh, well, she's a professional adventure racer, a former firefighter, and uh, well, now she helps companies reinvent and reinvigorate their teams. Yes, I'm actually a current firefighter, believe it or not. You're still yeah, firefighting. Yeah. Is there anything you don't do? <laughs> I don't cook anything. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I think that's probably the single most dangerous thing that anyone could accomplish. Uh, no, it's, it's a blast. I'm, I'm 19 years in at San Diego City. And, um, and yeah, I'm still doing the ultra endurance racing stuff too. Yeah. So I, I have to ask you, I mean, you weren't sent back in time to protect John O'Connor, right? <laughs> From Terminators, because I kind of think you would, you would honestly give Sarah Connor a run for, your, for her money. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> uh, it's so good we finally got a chance to hang out because uh, we, we, we both work with the same team and we're speaking at the same event today. Yay, uh, American I'm, family. I'm glad I could warm them up for you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, so I would love to learn more about your story uh, because... I mean, I've obviously seen and read a lot, but my first question really is, what actually is adventure racing? Um, you know, not a lot of people have heard of it. It's a tiny little obscure extreme sport, and it was invented by a kind of a crazy awesome Frenchman and then popularized around the world by a guy named Mark Burnett, who a lot of people recognize because he started Survivor and all these other crazy shows. So this was his first whack at, I mean, we didn't realize we were in a reality show, but that's kind of, you know, over the years what it turned out to be. But um, it's a it's a race that is um, eight to 10 days long usually, and you have teams of four or five people, and you have to have one man and one woman on each team. And the race director will ask you to meet in the middle of the most remote place they can find on earth. And then they hand each team a set of maps and you have compasses and they give you road rules and the next morning they say, ready, set, go. We'll see you guys in 600 to 1,000 miles, you know, whichever team gets their first wins. Oh my gosh. And um, it's all... You're not naked, right? No, there's no naked and afraid. We're afraid, but we're not naked. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was before that started. And it's nonstop. All non-motorized transportation and nonstop. Wow. So, you know, if you sleep and when you sleep is all part of your strategy. So, like, you're racing 22 hours a day for, like, 6 to 10 days nonstop if you want to win. And you have to stay together, which is the integral piece because it's not about, like, relay style where one person goes and the next person goes. All four or five people have to stay together the entire time. Because if you leave someone behind, that's it, you're out. Right, you're disqualified. The whole team's disqualified. Yeah, I saw some amazing clip you were talking about, some Japanese team, where um, one of the team members had... had, uh, with their Achilles uh, tendon, mm-hmm. and they actually carried her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really one of the most inspiring things I had ever seen. Like, they were going to, you know, in the true Japanese spirit, you know, that higher sense of purpose, and when the you-know-what's hitting the fan, they decided to think out of the box and innovate, and they actually found a way to turn a backpack inside out and made a little seat, literally for her, so that they can carry her on their backs. And it wasn't just a short little hike to the finish line. They had to hike up and over the tallest mountain in Queensland. Oh, my God. And it was like a 13-hour hike up and over this mountain. And no trails. Like, I mean, I I was behind them in the race. Um, These were like tiny, tiny little single-track trails, really rooty, ruddy, rocky. And they found a way to carry that girl up and over the mountain to the, you know. I mean, it's 
extraordinary trust, not just by them, but by her and actually deciding to get on their back. Exactly. And that's why as they're crossing the finish line, the shot that I have of them in my presentation is they actually have her on their shoulders. And it makes an incredible point about, you know, they all left their egos at the start line. You know, you can't bring your ego to work or, you know, into any adventure race. And they made her the hero, you know, for having endured that and trusted them. And, you know, and what an incredible statement about you know, synergy that, you know, that she was the linchpin to their success because of how brave she was. So what what are some of the terrains and and the circumstances you had to face in in those kinds of adventures? Oh my gosh. Um, You know, I mean, the fact you had to go to Queensland is is actually terrifying enough. (laughs) Because you know it, don't (laughs) you? You know, as an Australian, I know like some of the most terrifying animals and people develop. Oh my God, the spiders are as big as your head. Honestly, that's why I always made the guys go first. (laughs) That's one of my girl cards I had to throw down. I I was telling someone, the fact that we actually have something called a bird-eating spider, just just not really a great advertisement to come visit Australia. No, I mean, you know, it's so exciting. Oh, you're going to Australia and you're envisioning all this great, you know, open plains and kangaroos hopping by and koala bears and trees and oh my gosh we were like in the jungle like oh yeah oh yeah it was no kidding around over there but I mean every race has its um like in Ecuador we had to on day three summit a 19,700 foot active volcano 19.7 like on day three after 72 hours of running 75 miles you know starting at 14,000 feet elevation and then having an hour to rest at this hut at 15,000 feet and then having to summit to, to 20,000. 19.7 sounds bad, but I, I would be more focused on the active word. In your <laughs> 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 like, what, what, who climbs up in the active volcano? You know what? When you're racing, you're just like, what, I have to jump through burning fire? I have to like, run through alligator pits? Whatever. Am I going to win? Yeah, I'm going. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And plus, you have your team, which, you know, that's the, the, you know, the thing that applies so well to businesses. You're doing things you could never ever ever achieve alone in a million years but with a great team that you trust and maybe has strengths and talents that you don't have and everyone leaves their ego at the start line you learn to rely on each other and and not be afraid to raise your hand and say I'm afraid I need help um, I'm falling apart you know when when you have that communication that trust with each other where it's all about towing each other carrying each other's weight when you have a tough day you rely on somebody else they literally carry you in some cases and it doesn't mean that you're less than it means that that's how we win you know it's that's the understanding is grabbing a tow line isn't a weakness it's how we win Hmm. and when you have that understanding with your teammates you're one of the top teams in the sport because a lot of people bring their four best athletes you know these amazing you know world champions of this that and the other thing mountain biking and running and and if they can't get it together as a team they all just end up battling internally you know the egos get involved and no one will ask for help and no one wants to help anybody else and lessen their strength because they have to be the strongest one and, and that team will never make it to the finish line. So you actually so often see teams where the individuals actually aren't that spectacular, but they've got a better team. That was us, yeah. Really? <laughs> well, we were all like, you know, between like 35 and 50 years old. Um, we were not, for the most part, I mean, we were all kind of just above average, slightly above average athletes. Um, and, and we came from all over the world. We came mostly from four or five different countries. And, you know, we never even really trained together, but we were the team that just had that mindset, you know, and that understanding that we're going to tow each other, we're going to carry each other, we're all going to suffer equally, right. you know, from, from start to finish, and that's how we're going to win. What was the turning point in, in, in the team's cohesion? Was it a sit-down? Was it a sort of a come-to-Jesus meeting? Like, how did you sort of get that level Not of really. integration? Um, it's funny, because well, I raced mostly with the Aussies and the Kiwis, and they don't talk a lot. <laughs> 
No, I was going to say, this is what I was <laughs> There are a lot about doing, but really it was just, um, you know, because you couldn't cross a finish line without your other teammates, it was an evolution of how do we win? You know, just kind of picking apart what's the best strategy, mm-hmm. knowing that we have to get all these people across the finish line. And it became, it evolved into, you know, we really have to care about each other as much as we care about ourselves. It doesn't matter if we're strong as heck, we can't even get to the finish line and we're not allowed to. We fail. No, no matter how amazing we are, we fail as a soloist. And so we have to understand that, you know, in the long run, we're all going to be the strongest link and we're all going to be the weakest link. So embrace it, you know, take care of each other and, and even out each other's rough spots. And that ended up being the winning strategy. You must see this a lot in companies. I mean, at every scale, from, from small teams to big corporations, you often have high-performing individuals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they really struggle to bring the rest of the organization or even the people around them with them. Yeah, and you know, you, you see that a lot in, in every sport, in every business. I mean, I have a, a corporate background as well. I, I spent a number of years carrying the bag for pharmaceutical and hospital supply companies, and, and um, it was that same thing, and I was that person. You know, I was that person who was like, well, I'm gonna be the number one sales rep, and it was kind of all about my success because that's the background I came from. I was an individual sport athlete, until you know until I discovered adventure racing but one of the things I did discover as I grew into into the sales job is that the guy who was number one every single year he was out of the Salt Lake City region and um, it drove me bananas because he would always share all of his best stuff like at the end of the week he would call people email people and share like what worked for him and what he learned and something that a doctor told him or a different study that he used or a way he got into a hospital system so he was actually coaching and, his competitors oh yeah he but here's was the, and that's how he was number one i i always thought he succeeded despite that but he succeeded because of that and when i asked him why he did it he said what do you think happens when i when i you know reach out to everybody they reach back out to me and we've developed this small little cadre of people who continually share with each other and now they're my best friends cuz we're on the incentive trip every year cuz we we all you know we rise together if we don't care if we're making somebody better they're making us better we're all rising together you know why would we compete against somebody and keep the level lower it doesn't make any sense so he had made that transition in his brain and when i heard about it i just went god i've been doing this wrong all along you know even if you have an individual goal if you understand that you reach out to other people and like draft off each other, you know, and, and, and share your success, they share theirs, you all rise together. So even if you have an individual goal, synergy makes complete sense. Companies who are very performance oriented tend to actually set up incentives in management that mm-hmm. focus on individuals or even sociopath. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so, you know, what do you see, you know, you talk a lot about human synergy, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to just teamwork. Um, do you think part of the issue is, is that we don't really have a very good idea at what winning as a team means in a, in a corporate sense? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of cases you are rewarded, you know, for being a great individual. And, and you know, you never want to lose that. But there should be an equal and parallel, you know, level of, of reward for people who are genuinely, you know, creating other leaders, bringing people forward. And, you know, that understanding that it's not just like, a nicey nice thing you know it's not just you know Barney and rainbows and fluffy things and, and bunnies and let's skip and hold hands this is killer strategy and I think once people see that that when you have someone that maybe is great at something you're not great at and you constantly tow each other and share back and forth you're both gonna get to your finish lines faster and I think a lot of people don't understand or embrace that until they try it yeah. and they see how well with a great trusted and trusting group of people who are willing to take and give 
you know, without anything negative being attached to that, that they see they get so much further. And it's almost like you have to set it up to, to help people see that for themselves. A lot of next generation companies are experimenting with those ideas. Like I, I'd read Google has this idea of called emergent leadership, mm. where they're actually looking for leaders not who are good at getting things done, but who are good at empowering other people to step up and take more responsibility. I mean, I think it's a huge job, and a lot of people, when they get to a management level or in a position where they're they're leading others, um, you know, we all know there's that big difference between management and leadership. You know, you're 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 not only facilitating their success as a manager, which is you know a big part of your job, but one of the more important things that you need to do is realize that part of of who you are and showing your success is the fact that you create other leaders, and when other people emerge into different leadership roles, you know. That's that should count as a feather in your cap. Like you, you can have your ego, you know, but you feed it with this, with, with the success of other people that you've brought along. Not you standing above everybody, but you saying, you know, I did an incredible job here because this person has, has is not only my colleague now. You know, they've even moved further up, and I had a part in that. You know, so it's almost that that um, that parental sort of vibe where where I I get my success from watching the people around me succeed I helped them achieve their success and that's what you wrap your ego around you know is your teams and your teammates success and not how great you look right. and and when you've you know made that transition everybody knows how awesome you are you know if you're if you're good enough to brag someone else is going to do it for you and you know when people have got to that point people see people realize you know you don't need to stand on the top of the podium alone you know you need to facilitate that like Stanley Cup moment where all your teammates are standing up there and you're pouring champagne on each other that's the moment you want not you standing up there alone getting the gold medal in your corporation <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are the elements of human synergy um, it's actually an acronym for teamwork and uh, um, my teammates actually and I did sit down one day and we were like what what is this magic you know what's the what's the recipe here because we were asked so many times you know like you guys aren't, you know, because we were not all like skinny ripped athletes, you know, we all like had other jobs and, and, you know, there's no such thing really as a professional adventure racer. I mean, if you are, it means you're living out of your car. I mean, there was like, <laughs> there was, you know, no prize money or whatever, but it really is, um, it's a, the, it's an acronym for teamwork and it's total commitment, empathy and awareness of teammates, you know, that human connection, um, adversity and, and challenge and change management, uh, mutual respect we thinking versus me thinking you know always thinking of, of the collective and getting each other across the finish line uh, ownership you know buy-in you know inspiration creating inspiration uh, relinquishment of ego is the r you know you're not allowed to bring your ego on the course with you because it, it literally is the heaviest thing in your back and you will not get it to the finish line and then kinetic leadership you know either situational leadership and also um changing changing leaders you know allowing different leaders to emerge based on their strengths not their titles and um, so when you have those eight essential, it's literally the recipe for, for building a world class What is kinetic team. leadership? Um, well, leadership, leadership that constantly flows and changes from, from two different perspectives. Changing leaders on your team, you know, knowing that, yes, you're the manager, but you don't always have to be the leader. You know, right. part of what makes you great is that you bring other people forward to lead. Not based on their titles, based on their strengths. Because everyone's got a strength that you don't have. You know, put them forward. You know, let them lead. They're also going to have a hell of a lot more buy-in and ownership when they lead. And then situational leadership, you know, changing leadership styles. So in my presentation, I talk about a a study, a Harvard Business Review study uh, called Leadership That Gets Results by Daniel Goleman. 
And uh, he looked at 3,000 middle-level managers over three years, looked at their leadership behaviors, those behaviors affect on the corporate climate, and most importantly, those leadership behaviors affect on um, profitability, you know, right. business unit success. And what he discovered was that your style or styles that you live in the most, literally responsible for 30% of your bottom line profitability. Yeah. 30%. I mean, they studied over three years, you know, in depth. And it was a 30% sway, depending on what leadership style these, these people used. And, um, you know, the yada, yada, yada on the article was that, you know, use situational leadership, you know, change, change leadership styles like a golfer changes his or her clubs with the, the most important and prevalent one, you know, being sort of the visionary, um, you know, where you can see the finish line, but, but you need everyone's help to get there, followed very closely by like affiliative, you know, leading by friendship, coaching, and then democratic. One thing that was very interesting about the study is that, um, you know, a lot of people think pace setting was one of the styles he looked at, like where you sort of get out in front and, and lead the way. And a lot mm. of leaders think that that's one of their most important roles is to get out front and lead the way. Uh, but according to this study, that was one of the styles to live in the least right. for business unit profitability. And it was because um, people didn't have that same entrepreneurial spirit that they have if, if they feel like you're their colleague or it, they get it, to lead it, it you. Becomes, it also becomes like learned dependency. <laughs> right, right. If, if they expect that all the energy for doing stuff is going to come from the guy in front, they right. just... And that he's going to get the credit and that and that you're sort of in their shadow and it's their division and you're just a worker bee. Like, you don't have that ownership. Right, yeah. right. And so it's, it's funny how what a lot of us are driven to do is i got to get out in front and lead is actually one of the styles to live in the least, you know, only to be used like if there's a corporate turnaround, something needs to be done immediately, you know, but, um, but for the most part, it's about building and creating other leaders. I'm not going to let you off the hook without you telling me a couple of good stories about okay. how, how this comes to life, <laughs> <laughs> preferably invo involving leeches and lions. Uh, so okay, so one of my one of my favorite stories about and in my presentation, very few of the stories are about me because I was sort of the rookie on the on the team. Like I came onto this world class team, and a lot of this is about observations of watching these amazing guys in action and learning from them. So um, we were racing uh, the French, uh, which it was always a theme throughout my entire presentation because it was always us and the top French teams at at the front of the pack because right. they were the best in the world at the sport. And, and let's face it, they play good villains. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and especially when we were in a French race, it was always so hard to beat them for many many reasons. Um, but we're in Ecuador, and it was the the raid Galois, you know, sort of the French version of the Eco Challenge. And um, day seven, we're literally still neck and neck with the top team, and and we started three days downriver to the finish. It was nine days for the win. I mean, other teams were out there twelve days. And um, so it was three days to the finish, and it started with each team in a whitewater raft. So we jumped in ours, and they jumped in theirs. And my brain had always operated on, on you know, fear of failure instead of hope of success. And, and one of the points I make about adversity management is that great leaders are constantly, you know, focusing on the hope of success versus the fear of failure. So I make the point of how I was the fear of failure person in the boat. So as we're going down the river in the whitewater raft, I, about every 10 strokes, I would turn around to see where our competitors were. And finally, I was driving my teammate so bananas. He was sitting behind me in the boat, an Aussie. Um, he was sitting behind me in the boat. He was so mad that after a couple hours of me turning around every three, four minutes. He, he, the next time I turned around, he threw his paddle down in the boat and he grabbed the top of my head, which was facing backwards. <laughs> and he physically like spun my head back around to face forwards downriver. And then he leaned over and in my ear, he said, winning is that way and pointed downriver. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because you know it wasn't like this big breakthrough moment for me. Like I was so mad. I <laughs> like spent hours thinking about all the ways I could drown the little man. And, but um, there was a guy on the other side of the boat, a guy named Steve Gurney, uh, a, a Kiwi, and he had one of those MacGyver brains. And you know, he, he could literally build a space shell in his living room. And he started thinking about what it was really gonna take to win and what resources we had. And in the next transition, they took away each team's whitewater raft and gave each of us two inflatable canoes. So Intersport took off in their inflatable canoes with their canoe paddles and they, they were gone down the river. And Steve turned to all of us, my teammate, and said, hold on guys, wait, I got an idea. And he said, I wanna take our climbing rope out of our gearbox and tie both of our boats together. He wanted to tie them together like end to end, making one big long boat oh. using our climbing rope from the from the mountaineering section, you know, through all the D-rings on the outside of the boat so we could make one big long boat. And then he said, and why why are we stuck using canoe paddles just because these are technically canoes and the race director handed us canoe paddles? We're a kayaking team. We're a much stronger kayaking team. We have our kayak paddles in this box, but no one had ever thought to use kayak paddles in the canoes before. So we got at our kayak paddles and made them longer to fit around the edges of the canoes. Uh, now, some people don't know the difference between canoe and kayak paddles. A canoe paddle is like a single blade, and yeah. then you switch hands and use it on the other side. A kayak paddle is one like big double. long blade, right? And you got double blades, so you swing back and forth with They're literally almost two different sports. So we got at our kayak paddles. No one had ever used them in the canoes before, made them longer. And between those two things, tying the boats together and switching out paddles, we ended up creating what we kind of called the Steve Gurney missile. <laughs> and uh, and we put it on the water 40 minutes behind the French. Wow. 40 minutes. I mean, it was one of those moments where it was either like the biggest mistake you ever made or like the most brilliant thing you could imagine. And Was, it, was there quite a bit of argument around it? Like, did people no. just sort of accept MacGyver? And... Yeah, we, I mean, well, because we had already wasted like two or three minutes thinking about it. And then at that point, you're like... Now we really have to do this because now we, this gap is getting bigger and bigger, and, and we have to do something. Means. Right, yeah. and and so um, you know, I was freaking out. Like I was the person that was looking at my watch, going five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. You know, like the race in in my mind could have been over if this thing didn't work. But my teammates were so good at getting the boats together, getting it just right, and and with the canoe pad of uh, the kayak paddles, we literally. We were literally going double their speed. It took us about six, eight hours to catch them. (laughs) But when we saw them around the corner, we could see that they were just using their canoe paddles constantly. We come around the corner and actually show the video of this because they caught it in action. We're literally like five people, five minds, you know, one mind, one heart, like literally, yeah, Yeah. and and ripping through these these kayak strokes. And when we passed them, we passed them and made such a wake that they literally spun around. Their front boat (laughs) spun around and faced the wrong way. And, and we never saw him again. And um, we, w- we ended up winning the race the next day by two hours. Wow. And it was literally that moment when somebody said, hey guys, we're, we're, all we're focusing on is not losing. We gotta focus on what's it gonna take to win. With the point being, and what I asked the audience is, you know, now it's your turn to think about what is your Steve Gurney missile? You know, going to be like, how are you going to take your core talents, you know, what you're already great at and your uh, agility and your ability to be nimble and your teammates and your your innovation and your creativity and your resources and say, I'm not going to find a way to, you know, slightly tilt the game board in our favor. We're going to find a way to totally change this game. One of the challenges people have in big companies, especially been around for a while, is that when the guy's got the idea, you know, to create the missile all the processes, the you know the, the workflows, the regulations, the fear yeah. it gets in the way of people actually trying things. Right, um, and that's the environment you have to create, I suppose. You know, yeah. as a leader, as a, as a corporation, is I mean, in so many cases, you don't you don't even come upon the right 
solution until you've had X, Y, or Z number of whacks at it that haven't worked. Because every time something doesn't work, you find something that make that makes it work. You know, you figure out that next little ingredient. Like this didn't work because so of really that. So really, tolerance for failure is right. as important as an appetite for innovation. I'd, I'd say. I mean, don't you? Yeah, don't you yeah, think? Yeah. I mean, because you know, I go back to you know my. Uh, I, I was a judo player for a long time. All right. And um, one of the things I learned from my coach was I was always afraid to try throws because I, I was afraid I was going to fail. And I was so afraid of failure that in a lot of cases I never got to the point where I had failed so many times that I had learned to get it right. And when he explained to me that you have to try a throw, it might be 3,000 times before everything you know, clicks into place in your mind. All the little you know, off balancing and, and twist and, and friction and drive, all these different things that you learn every single time you fail, you've learned one little thing. Wow. And finally that glass fills up of all the things that you've learned and the next time you try to throw that person there on the ground. But you can't get there without the 3,000 fails. Yeah. And so once I learned that, I, w- I was failing all over the place, but I knew that was the way to get to where I, where I got it. You know? so, so failure in a way is almost like a way of feeling out the, the process. Yeah, well, because you learn something. You yeah. learn like one little dot of something, you know, one little grain of something that goes into the magical recipe that becomes... You know, I, I mean, I, speaking of, I mean, recipes, I imagine a chef doesn't get it right until they've made something disgusting a thousand times. And all of a sudden they're like, this is it. Like, I've got a sense you've got something about you and cooking. Like, it, it keeps turning up. You must have had a very traumatic experience, I think, or someone else did when you were cooking. I eat out of cans every day. Right, I, I, um, you know, uh, one of the other really interesting things you're involved in is uh, Project Athena. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really inspiring story, but I'd, I'd love to hear you tell me a bit Yeah, more um, I love Project Athena. It's like literally like the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And um, one of the things I talk about in my presentation under the banner of adversity management is that, you know, great leaders embrace setbacks as a chance to, you know, learn something or excel in a different way. And uh, I, I cite my own example of um, about seven years ago, I discovered I had stage four osteoarthritis in both my hips. So over the last seven years, I've actually had six hip replacements because, oh. um, you know, the first four failed, uh, which was a whole long shenanigan. But after my first hip replacement, I realized, well, I'm not really going to be an adventure racer anymore. Um, or at least a, a good one, <laughs> so, and I was certainly not going to be a runner anymore. Um, but you know, what can I do with this? And I was really inspired by a good friend of mine who's a breast cancer survivor, now a two-time breast cancer survivor. And she always put like a race or a challenge or an adventure on her calendar, so that in her mind she wasn't just a breast cancer survivor. She was, you know, still like she was an athlete. She was an ultra runner. She's a mountaineer, you know, so that. So the cancer didn't define her. Right, right. It was just like just a, a little sidebar to her amazing life as all these other things. And um, so kind of inspired by that, I got together with her and, um, and created the Project Athena Foundation. And what we do is we help survivors of medical or traumatic setbacks. It kind of started out to be breast cancer, but has expanded since then. We help them live an adventurous, crazy, challenging dream as part of their recovery. So that they can show themselves and their families, you know, how strong and amazing they are after a big setback. And it's really like their big comeback party. So it's not, you know, they've, they're done with everybody fawning over them for X, Y, or Z years and making sure they're okay. And then, and then they're alone. You know, once they're okay, everyone scatters, they're alone. And, and they're in that process of redefining who they are. And we come in and say, yes, you're a cancer survivor. Or yes, you had an amp- a leg amputated, but you are, you know, an adventurer. You're a multi-sport athlete. You're an endurance athlete. 
And so every year we have six adventures now. And this has been going on since, um, for about eight years now. And now we have six or seven adventures a year. Some are custom to where someone says, I've always wanted to run the uh, La Jolla Half Marathon. And, th and then we'll make that happen for them. But we also discovered that a lot of people like to do these things together. So we have a hike that we call the Harbor to Harbor, which is a 50-mile hike down the coast of San Diego over two days. Yeah. So it's from Oceanside Harbor to San Diego Harbor. Then we have a 24-hour nonstop adventure race in Santa Barbara. Uh, which we just did for the first time this year, literally going nonstop for 24 hours, kayaking, mountain biking, and hiking. And then we do two Grand Canyon treks. We do a rim-to-rim -rim in one day, and then we also do a rim-to-rim-to-rim -rim -rim in two days, where we go all the way over in one day and all the way back the and, next and, day. And, and these people who have really been battened down by circumstance in life, what does it take to get them in a psychological state where they believe they could actually do this? Well, I mean, they probably to fill out the application, they have to have an inkling <clears throat> of, of belief, but they're not all athletes. In fact, half of our people have no athletic background at all. And that's where a lot of the magic of Project Athena is because we have these amazing coaches and we have uh, Louise is our chief inspiration officer, you know, our two-time breast cancer survivor. So, so she's kind of their case manager. And then we have two incredible, awesome coaches that work with them for, you know, sometimes up to six to eight months. Wow. And there's, you know, weekly phone calls and training plans and, and nutrition. And, here, and even like, here's how to pack your pack. You're like literally everything they possibly need to know, we teach them over about six months. And um, we not only take survivors on our adventures, we also take fundraisers. And that's how we get the funding for the survivors to go. So half the group's like survivors and half the group are fundraisers, which in a lot of cases are their friends and family or people that I meet through my presentations. And so it's really neat because, you know, unlike some other things, you know, like, you know, for example, like uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, you're, you're raising money for a great cause. And it's wonderful, but in a lot of cases, you don't actually see it in action. And in, in our case, when someone comes on a Project Athena adventure, they see the survivor that that they've literally raised the funds for, for their grant. They're, they're paddling with them, they're riding with them, they're hiking with them, and they get to watch them literally watch these people evolve from kind of someone who's scared and nervous and unsure of themselves to this confident, amazing being a champion. endurance athlete. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. pretty cool. Like, and it happens <laughs> over just a couple days and and uh, it, just, it changes their lives and it's um, it's the best thing in the world. And uh, you know, it's, I get all floopy when I talk about it, but it's, um, yeah, our next one coming up is a canyon and then we have the Florida Keys where we, we uh, kayak, bike ride, um, mostly kayak and bike ride with a little bit of hiking, but from Key Largo to Key West. 120 miles. Well, dodging alligators. Yeah. Mm, now, yeah, right? <laughs> but no, best thing in the world. So if anybody, uh, if any of your listeners want to come with us um, or know a survivor, we can help. That website's projectathena.org. And you can come too. Yay, Mike. <laughs> well, Robin, it was really great hanging out. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Ah, thank you very it's much. Been it's very been inspiring. a blast. Yeah, thank, thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.